Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. Greetings to uh, Franklin Campus, Pastor Eric, uh, Natasha, we love you so much. Uh, Church on the Square, Imperial, Oklahoma, uh, Brian Ahern, we love you so much. God bless you guys. Worship the Lord with us together in the Word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is where we'll begin. Starting a new message series this morning entitled, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an old phrase that I learned years ago as a definition of grace. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. I want us to take several weeks and simply talk about the doctrine of, of grace. When it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to our Christian lives, there's nothing more important than the doctrine of grace. And I want us to spend some time talking about what grace is, what grace is not. We're going to do uh, this uh, this morning by going all the way back to the very, very beginning and talking about God and, and the essential nature of God as a God of grace. We're going to begin right there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. These are familiar verses to you, but that doesn't mean you've heard them before. Listen, listen, listen to what the Word of God says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you, go ahead and underline that phrase because that's good, I have given you. God said, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given, underline that, I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very, say the word, good. It was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Okay, when Scripture says that the serpent is shrewd, it, it wants you to start listening. That means that when he's shrewd, you can't trust what he says. So you've really got to pay attention to what the serpent says. He's shrewd. One day the serpent asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. Okay, stop right there. We don't think about that, but what's Adam doing this whole time? Just standing there, duh. Standing there, standing there, letting it happen. He's standing there right there. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt Shame at their nakedness, shame. So they sewed fig trees together to cover themselves. Y'all ever seen a fig, fig leaf? You ever seen one? It's not like the paintings where it's just the right size to cover stuff. Fig leaves, Google it. Understand, they're not very good for covering, and they have the texture of sandpaper. That ought to be nice. 
When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now now remember, it's the Harris rule of biblical interpretation. Whenever God asks a question, it's not because there's something God doesn't know. You understand that? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. The Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied, that's why I ate it. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Underline that because that is very, very, very important. That the offspring of the woman will strike the serpent's head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. The word Eve sounds like the word for mother. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Don't miss that. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim. What are cherubim? These warrior angels. He stationed mighty cherubim, warrior angels, to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, stop right there. Take your seats. Little Bible quiz here. Who wrote the book of Matthew? (laughs) I didn't think I was starting with a hard question. Who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew, yeah. Who wrote the book of Mark? Mark. Who wrote the book of Luke? Who wrote the book of John? Who wrote the book of Ezra? Who wrote the book of Nehemiah? Who wrote the book of Habakkuk? Obadiah? Haggai? Who wrote the book of Genesis? Ah, yeah, y'all are good, yeah. Tradition says Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Now understand, that's just tradition. There's not a single place in Scripture where it says Moses wrote this. But it is a very, very ancient tradition that Moses himself wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, that Moses wrote this. 
So let's stop right there. When we read the book of Genesis, we bring our own questions, we bring our own context, but understand, it really might come from a place very different from the place you come from, and especially if it's true that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. As a tradition goes, Moses wrote the book of Genesis Shortly after the exodus, after the children of Israel were delivered from slavery in in Egypt, he he wrote the book of Genesis. So stop and think about that. If he wrote the book of, of Genesis shortly after the children of Israel were brought out of slavery, shortly after they, they, they meet this God in the wilderness there at the mountain and are asked to form a covenant with him, if, if Moses writes Genesis in that context, in that sort of setting, What's he trying to accomplish? What is the Holy Spirit trying to do in communicating this word, the book of Genesis, through Moses to to those early, early people of Israel coming out of Egypt? Why? What's the point? I want you to think about it because it really impacts the way we read it. For a lot of us, when we read the book of Genesis, we're more interested in in creation as far as where everything came from. That's the question we tend to bring to Genesis in our day and age. We want to know how things came into being. We want to know about seven literal days. We want to know about where the dinosaurs fit in. We want to know about Neanderthals, and and we want to know about the cave people and the Ice Age. We bring all of these questions that come out of our hundred years of fighting the battle of evolution. But I just want to remind you, Moses didn't care about Neanderthals. Actually, he didn't care about dinosaurs either. He's probably not writing with the primary purpose of trying to explain the dinosaurs to us. I'm not saying it's not important for us. I'm not saying those questions don't matter. I'm just saying when we read the book of Genesis, maybe there is a larger purpose, a more fundamental purpose. I'm not sure that the people coming out of Egypt, forming this new relationship with God, I'm not sure they need so much to know about the dinosaurs either, but they really need to know about this God. They really need to know about God, this God that has just brought them out of slavery. After something like 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after something like 400 years of Egyptian religion, Uh, The the many, many gods of the Egyptian religions and the superstition and the Egyptian mythology. These people now who are asked to form a covenant relationship with God, they need to know who God is. They need to know what this God is like. They need to know about his character, his nature. He's like nothing they've ever heard or seen before. Do you understand So the book of Genesis, it is fundamentally a book that introduces us to God, introducing us to God, and it it tries to portray for us God in his essential nature. Who is God and what is he like? And when you read the book of Genesis from the very beginning, what you understand very quickly is that this is a God like no other. This is a God of grace. Grace. People say, oh, the world religions, they're all the same. They all basically teach the same thing. No, they don't. 
No, they don't. And anybody who says that has never studied world religions. They don't teach the same thing. They don't have the same message. And the God of Scripture, the God that we meet in the book of Genesis, is like nothing you've ever seen before. Like no God ever imagined in a human mind. This God is different. Radically different. And what makes him different is grace. Hinduism has nothing like grace. Buddhism has nothing like grace. No other world religion in all of history has anything like the grace that you find in the God of the Bible. He is a God of of grace. So what is grace? Let's define that word. It's, a, it's probably the premier churchy word. We sing about amazing grace and grace greater than our sins and, and grace falling down like rain. What is, is grace? I'm using the, the, the phrase God's riches at Christ's expense to name this message series. That, that's a very, very important way of thinking about our salvation. But, but more simply, what is What is grace? Grace is the essential nature of God. The scriptures show us that God is a God of grace. In other words, God is a God who accepts us before we are acceptable. Do you understand? He accepts us before we are acceptable. God loves us before we are lovable. It's grace. Grace is the offer of exactly what we need but don't deserve. You understand? We don't deserve any of it. And God is this God of of incredible, incredible grace. Genesis shows us that God is a God who makes everything. Now, as I said, the, the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, and they knew all about the Egyptian creation myths. They knew all about the, the other traditions, the other stories that the ancient world told about where everything came from. And honestly, what the Holy Spirit reveals in Genesis is nothing like those other stories. And the other stories, you, you end up with, with multiple gods who just sort of are, are, are in a world that's already there, and they're just managing it. They're just running it. But Genesis shows us a very different picture of the God who was before everything else. The God who calls everything else into being. And that's absolutely amazing. Now the children of Israel, having seen the Red Sea part, having seen the first Passover, having experienced God's delivering them from the iron fist of Egypt, they're going to have no trouble understanding that God can create something out of nothing. His power is not strange to them. They've seen it. They've experienced it. It's his character. It's his nature that they need to understand. And so Moses begins to write, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he begins to write the story of creation, how God simply calls everything into being. He creates light and darkness, and he says it's, it's good. He separates the water from the dry land, and he says that it's good. And, and then he, he fills the earth. Everything that he does, he does in abundance. Do, do you catch that? He fills the sky with birds. The, the, the clouds explode with birds, and he fills the ocean, all of the water with, with fish. He fills the ocean with life, and he fills the earth, fills the land with, with small creatures and big creatures scurrying everywhere. Do you understand? He fills the earth with life. 
But, but it's not just life. It's not just cookie cutter. He creates with such amazing, amazing variety. He creates with this amazing beauty. He doesn't do anything halfway. He doesn't do anything plain. Everything that God does, he does with, with abundant, abundant power, abundant beauty, lavish provision. This God creates a world and then stands back and says it's good. It's good. Which brings us to the question, good for what? Good for whom? When God says it's good, what's he talking about? How is it good? Who is it good for? What's it good for? And this is the amazing thing. The absolutely amazing thing. When God says it's good, it's certainly good in his eyes. It delights him. He's certainly saying that it's good because it brings him glory. All of that is involved. But understand, when God says it's good, he's talking about it being good for us. It's good for us. God creates all of this, and then he makes us, and then he does an absolutely, absolutely fantastic thing. God creates it all, and then he simply gives it away. He creates it all, and then he gives it away. He gives it away to us. He creates all of this beauty, the entire universe with edges we'll never see, but he creates it all for us as a home for for us, you think I'm making this up? Turn back to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Seriously, turn. I want to hear some pages flopping. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even before God made the world... Even before God made the world, before the foundations of the earth, the scripture says, even before he made the world, God loved us. <laughs> okay, stop. Let that sink in. Before he made the world, before he stepped out in, in, into all of that and said, let there be light, but before he created the fish, before he created everything that is, before he called it all into being out of nothingness, before all of that, God loved us. God was thinking about us. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. He has a plan, do you understand? God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Do you understand? All of this before the foundations of the world, before anything was, he already had a plan to bring us into his family. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious, say the word, grace. The glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. God created everything and he gave it all away to us because that's what brought him great pleasure. Do you understand the grace of that? 
God just goes right through and says, I'm, I'm giving you all the plants to eat. I'm, I'm giving you all of the animals. I'm just giving this whole place to you. It's yours. Fill it. Fill it. Multiply. You understand God's incredible grace from the very, very beginning. I can remember when we first built this building. And I remember the very, very first week, the very first days in this building. And I especially remember the first Wednesday night. Because Wednesday night programs at Woodburn Baptist Church have always been a, a, a little bit wild. Just a little bit wild because Wednesday night is when we do all of our children's programs. Now, we had done children's programs in the old building for 10,000 years. You understand? For years and years and years. We had fed kids. We had changed diapers. We had let kids just run all over that place. It was what made that old church a wonderful place to grow up in. But we got across the street. We had this brand new building. We hadn't had anything new in all, in all of our lives. We had a brand new church. And that first Wednesday night, people had this strange response. People would come up to me and say, we going to let kids eat in here? we going to let kids eat in here? And I, I'm ashamed to say part of my response was, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't. Because you know what kids do with red Kool-Aid? It's just part of the way, part of the, way the world works. Red Kool-Aid goes where? On carpet. Yeah, on carpet. Yeah, some kid is going to come in with mud or dirt or snot or boogers all over their hands. And what are they going to do? They're going to touch the walls that we just painted. We're going to have boogers on the walls, people. If you got kids in the house, you have boogers on the walls. And we were all seeing that coming. And there's this sense of, <gasps> maybe, we'll, maybe we'll leave the kids in the old church. <laughs> but we made an amazing decision. It shouldn't be so amazing. It should be the instinct of God's people. God, help us that it's not always the natural instinct to be gracious. But we finally came around to, of course, of course we'll let the children run wild in this place. Of course they're going to drink Kool-Aid. Of course there's going to be all kinds of mucus on the walls, all kinds of it. We're going to create this church and we're going to give it away. Because that's what God does, you understand? It's called grace. You just give it away. You give it away to people that don't deserve it. You give it away to people who are going to ruin it. Which brings us to the next part of that story. They, they ruin it. God creates it. Before he created it, he already loved Adam and Eve, and he loved us. He, he had us in his mind. That's what's amazing. When God created basketball, Drew Tingle, he was thinking about you. Do you understand? He was thinking about us. Some of you, when he created Baskin-Robbins, he was thinking about you already. Do you understand? When he created sunsets, when he created the beats, he was thinking about me. He was thinking about us from the very, very beginning. And he created it all, and he gave it all away by his grace to people undeserving, to people who had done nothing to earn all of the splendor. He just gives it. And he gives it away, and he only has one rule. Okay, let that sink in. In, in the perfect world that God makes, there's only one rule. Now, this is going to be very important in the coming weeks because we have this really strange reputation as a people of God now as being people with a whole lot of rules. And to be real honest, at Woodburn Baptist Church, I think we have a lot of rules and probably more rules than we ought to have. I would even go so far as to say, I bet we got more rules than God has. 
We love rules. But God, in his wisdom, God, in his grace, he only had one rule. In other words, God, his very nature is to give and to give lavishly, just to pour the blessings on us. But his requirements, what he expects back, are very, very minimal. One rule. One rule. If we were created in his image, then it should be our essential nature to be gracious as he is gracious. But we aren't. We aren't. Some of you right now are so difficult to get along with because you have so many rules for what we have to do to be in relationship with you. Do you understand? We love to make rules. And as churches, we make a lot, a lot of rules. God help us. That's not the way of grace. And from the very beginning, when God is introduced to his people, he is introduced as a God of grace. Not a God who makes impossible demands. Not a God who lays burdens on people. That's not God. And you'll notice when God became flesh and came into the world and began to live and work and move and minister in the person of Jesus Christ, you know the story. When God in the flesh is walking and moving, who's the one group of people that he continues to bump heads with? Who's the one group of people that Jesus attacks literally with his words? Who's the one group of people that Jesus calls a bunch of whitewashed tombs? Who's the one group of people that said, you're like a bunch of blind people trying to lead other blind people? Who's the one group of people that Jesus had to continually stand in front of him and say, no, you do not have the way. You do not know the way. You are like your father, the devil. Who is that group of people that Jesus had to constantly confront? And by the way, it is the group of people who finally crucified him. Who are we talking about? Graceless religious people. Graceless religious people. When religion loses touch with grace, religion gets sick. It gets sick. And when Jesus was on earth, God in the flesh, he had to butt heads with the religious people who now had added rule upon rule upon rule. Jesus said, you just lay burdens on people's backs and you don't do anything. You won't lift a finger to help people. Do you understand? How very easily people like us who who say we've been saved by grace, how easily we slip into a very, very graceless kind of religion. Incidentally, in Jesus' teaching, he brought everybody back again to one rule. In the beginning, there was one rule. And yet we broke it. The one rule. God said, I'm giving you every tree. I'm giving you every plant in all creation. It's all yours. But there is one tree in the center of the garden. It it, it is that one tree. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Don't go near that one tree. And yet they did. Which brings us back to a God of grace. What does he do with the ones who sin? What does God do with the ones who break the only rule he set? What does he do with the ones who turn away from him? Well, he curses them. That's what you think when you read the story. It's a curse. It's the curse of sin, the curse of the fall. He curses them. Why don't you read a little bit more closely? Read closely. Because there are curses involved, but God never curses the people. Do you notice that? 
He does curse the serpent. He curses the serpent, and he curses the ground. The ground is cursed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But he does not curse the people. Very, very interesting. He does not curse the people. He does a rather amazing thing, actually. He does pronounce for them the consequences of their sin. Their sin matters, and their sin makes a difference. And it's one of the things we have to understand about grace. Grace does not make excuses for sin, and it doesn't really overlook sin. It doesn't underestimate the destruction and death of sin. God never does that. He understands the full weight of sin, but it somehow is still overwhelmed by the full weight of his grace. He does two amazing things here. They're signs of grace. Notice what the scripture says. Verse 21. The Lord God made clothing. He made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. There are several things implied there. First off, if he made clothing from animal skins, what had to happen? There must have been sacrifice. Blood is spilled in the Garden of Eden, and who spills it? God himself, for what purpose? To cover his people, to cover their shame. Blood is spilled, and the people are clothed. The word there that Moses uses to talk about how they're clothed is, is, is interesting. It, it's, it's a particular verb, and it's a verb you would use when you're talking about a king clothing his most honored subjects. It, it's a royal kind of treatment. It's, it's a majestic kind of clothing, and this is the word that is used here for the sinners, the ones who disobeyed God, the ones who deserve nothing from God. What did they receive from God? A, a sacrifice on their behalf. And then a royal kind of clothing. He, he clothes him like a king would clothe his most honored subjects. The word is also used sometimes to talk about the, the, the priest. The priest putting on their grand robes to go into the presence of God. They're clothed like a king and queen. They're, they're clothed like priests. The word used there is an amazing word for a God of such grace. The next part's tricky. Because it sounds very frightening. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Understand, in the garden, there were two trees. One was forbidden, one was not. The forbidden tree was the tree of knowledge. Don't eat from this tree, God said. But the other tree, the other enormous, the other phenomenal miracle tree in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life, the tree of eternal life. God's intention from the beginning was that they would eat from the tree of life and live forever in his presence, live forever in the joy of creation, simply live forever in fellowship with him. But now there's a problem. Sin has entered. Adam and Eve have, have broken the only rule that God set. So now God foresees a, a horrible future, a horrible consequence. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will Live forever. I thought that was the plan. 
I, I thought that was the plan. Adam and Eve weren't going to die before they ate the fruit. I thought this was the plan. Why now is it a disaster that Adam and Eve now, having sinned, why is it a disaster that they would go back and eat from the tree of life and now live forever? What is God's concern? What if they reach out, God says, and take fruit from the tree of life and, and live forever? God takes drastic measures to make sure that this never happens. What is he doing? Is this punishment? Is this God in his anger, God in his wrath? What is God doing? So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. What is he doing? That was their home. What is he doing? And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground for which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, warrior angels to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. What is he doing? It's called grace. It's called grace. I don't believe this is so much punishment here. It's grace. Because the man and woman now are separated from God. They are covered with shame. They hide from him. They blame him. They blame one another. They are sinners now. They were not created to be sinners. They were not created for sin. They were not created for shame. They were not created for hiding from their creator. They were not created for blaming and making excuses. They were not created for pain and sweat and toil. They were not created for this. This was not God's plan. What if they get back to the tree of life and they eat and, and they live forever? What is God's concern there? That we would live forever apart from him understand? God is not willing that we live forever in sin and shame and separation from him. God is not willing that we live forever apart from him. That flaming sword at the gate of the Garden of Eden that keeps us from the tree of life, you understand? That's grace. That's grace. And understand from the very, very beginning, God has a plan to bring us back. The small sign of grace that you find in verse 15, don't ever miss this. This is the opening of God's word. Verse 15, God is talking to the serpent and he says that the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman, in other words, some child born from some woman at some time in the future, the offspring of the woman will strike the serpent's head. The Hebrew word there is crush. Some child from some woman sometime in the future is going to crush the head of the serpent. Who would that be? That's Jesus. From the very foundation of the world, Scripture says, even before God made anything, he loved us and he chose us and he had a plan to bring us into his family, adopted sons and daughters, 
through Christ. This is what it pleased him to do. And we thank God for his grace. Pray with me. God, our maker, we thank you for everything that is. We thank you for this beautiful, beautiful world. We thank you for rainy skies. We thank you for crops. We thank you for children. We thank you for food. We thank you for this home that you have created for us. It is all so very, very good. God, we thank you most of all for creating everything so good and and simply giving it to us. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and choosing us to be in your family even before we were alive, before we could have done anything to deserve it, Lord, although we could never deserve any of this. It is simply your nature to give, simply your nature to love, simply your nature to be gracious. Lord God, I pray that all of us in this house, all in the sound of my voice, would rediscover the God who is gracious, always abundant in mercy and grace. God, we deserve nothing from you. We are not lovable. We are not acceptable. But in Christ, Lord, you have chosen us, loved us, accepted us, and saved us, brought us into your great family. God, the the grace that brings this plan down to us is amazing. We just want to give you thanks. Even so, Lord, there are many of us in this house who do not live lives of grace. We say that we've been saved by grace, Lord, but we don't live by it. We don't show it to others. Lord, there's some in this house who simply will not yield to your grace, will not say yes to your offer of everything that we need but could never deserve. Lord, there's some who simply walk away from you and your great love, your great grace. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this house today, I pray with, for those who are listening to my voice now, for those who've read this word from God's word with me, Lord, I pray that today grace wins out. I pray that today grace overwhelms this church. I pray that grace will overwhelm the Franklin campus. I pray that grace will cover the whole world. Lord, I pray that there be no person, no person hearing my voice, no person in this house, Lord, who would walk away today, walk away from the offer of your grace. Lord Jesus, let us draw near to you. Let us listen to your voice. Let us simply come to you, though we don't deserve anything, though our sins would separate us, Lord. Let us just simply come to you. Find the love and acceptance, the beauty that is found in your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. We are amazed and we are completely satisfied. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. I want to give you an opportunity to worship, an opportunity to respond. The altar.